I'm going to read out the end of this uh, sutta, which is just a very uh, traditional formula, which is found at the end of many of the suttas. And then I'll go back and um, recapitulate what was in it, and also um, refer to some of the things that haven't been mentioned yet. The Buddha, the last thing the Buddha said that what he, all these three different selves that are being talked about are merely names and expressions, terms of speech, designations in common use in the world which the Tathagata uses without misapprehending them. And as these words, Puttapada the wanderer, said to the Lord, Excellent Lord, excellent, it is as if someone were to set up what had been knocked down or to point out the way to one who had got lost, or to bring an oil lamp into a dark place, so that those with eyes could see what was there. Just so, the Blessed Lord has expounded the Dhamma in various ways. Lord, I go for refuge to the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. May the Buddha accept me as a lay follower who has taken refuge in him from this day forth as long as life shall last. So, Puttapada wants to, is taking refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha and wants to be a lay follower for, for the rest of his life. But Chitta, son of the elephant trainer, said to the Buddha, Excellent Lord, excellent. It is as if someone were to set up what had been knocked down, exactly the same words, or to point out the way to one who had got lost, or to bring an oil lamp into a dark place so that those with eyes could see what was there. Just so the Blessed Lord has expounded the Dhamma in various ways. Lord, I go for refuge to the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. May I receive the going forth at the Lord's hands. May I receive ordination. The going forth is another way of saying to become a monk or a nun, which means going forth from the home life into the homeless life. And Chitta, son of the elephant trainer, receives the going forth at the Lord's hands into ordination. And the newly ordained, venerable Chitta, alone, secluded, unwearing, zealous and resolute, in a short time, attained to that for the sake of which young men of good birth go forth from the household life into homelessness, that unexcelled culmination of the holy life, having realized it here and now by his own super-knowledge and dwelt therein, knowing birth is destroyed, the holy life has been lived. What had to be done has been done. There's nothing further here. And the venerable Shitta, son of the elephant trainer, became another of the Arahants. Now, at the time of the Buddha, when you received ordination at the Buddha's hands, all that was said was Ehi Bhikkhu, which means come monk, or Ehi Bhikkhuni, come nun. And later, there were many that wanted to receive ordination, and it was impossible for the Buddha to do it personally anymore because also he was getting old and couldn't uh, get about 
to so many far places, so he gave instruction to the monks how to ordain, and then there was a certain ritual and a certain tradition established, and at first only a few rules were set up, and as more and more monks and nuns entered into the Sangha, the monastic community, more and more um, mistakes were made by them, to put it politely, and so every time a monk or a nun did something foolish, the Buddha set up a new rule. So in the end, we wound up with 227 rules for the monks and 311 for the nuns, five volumes full. And of course, quite a number of them, of the minor ones, this is a personal opinion, um, are only relating to that time and that place. And at, on the deathbed, the Buddha said to Ananda, who was his attendant and was standing there, that the minor rules should be abolished. And because Ananda failed to ask which are the minor rules, nobody dared to abolish anything. And so the Theravada lineage is stuck with something which is totally unwieldy and very, very difficult to handle, particularly in the West. And even in the East, it isn't any more feasible to handle it the way it is written. So, at the time of the Buddha, was just said, Ehibiku, and all the rigmarole was not uh, attended to. Now then, this newly ordained Venerable Shitta, he, was, he stayed alone, secluded, unwearing, zealous, and resolute. These are the necessary ingredients to become an arahant, particularly to be zealous and unwearing. And in a short time, he attained to that for the sake of which young men of good birth go forth from the household life into homelessness. A very traditional sentence, it's always said like that. To attain to that from which, for which one goes forth, which means Nibbana. It's the only reason to do anything like this. Um, nowadays, of course, it isn't the only reason, but it's supposed to be the only reason. And also the word that it is that these are people of good birth, which is interesting because it sort of denotes that these are um, higher class people, but it isn't so, it's not that at all. He took anyone, he took from any caste, very strong caste system in India, and he took anyone from any caste. There was no distinction. So actually, uh, good birth uh, does not denote that it should have been a person that was... Um, of uh, either rich or of good standing or anything like that. The one of the lowest castes was the barber caste, and he took a barber also, and a street sweeper, had a street sweeper. I mean, these are named, so he might have had many of them, I don't know, but some of them are named. So um, the, the word good birth does not uh, have any bearing on being... Um, princes or uh, ministers or anything like that, although he did have a great following amongst them. 
And one realizes it here and now by one's own super-knowledge. Yes, and the word super-knowledge is an English translation, which is sort of, um, well, the best one can do, I suppose. It's, uh, one could say, inside wisdom. The word super-knowledge denotes inside wisdom. And it's just a matter for the translator what he chooses to use. And what the Arahant knows is that there's no craving to be. It's gone. If death should happen now, this moment, that's quite all right. If happens later, that's quite all right. If the eight worldly Dhammas are a very distinct checking point how one feels about it when they happen not how one imagines one feels about it but if they do happen the eight worldly dhammas are praise and blame loss and gain fame and ill fame and happiness and unhappiness and obviously an arahant doesn't feel any different whichever one of those eight arises and an ordinary person wants four of them and the other four are supposed to be disappearing as quickly as possible. So these eight are an excellent checkpoint, how one feels about it. And the, um, an Arahant knows that birth is destroyed because of the fact that there is no way one can be reborn if one doesn't have the craving to be here. The holy life has been lived. What had to be done has been done. There's nothing further here. It's all. This is all done. And, uh, of course, in the Buddha's time, it is said that there were 1,500 Arahants. But, unfortunately, one cannot take that number for granted that it is really means 1,500, because all multiples of 500 were used to denote many. And uh, the number seven was used to denote small. So one is never quite sure whether 1,500 are meant or whether it means many, 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 three times many. So one can't say. But it says in the scripture that there were 1,500 Arahants at the time of the Parinibbana of the Buddha. So, which would have been quite an amazing number. Um, a lot of arahants. And also it is interesting to note that the Venerable Shitta, who was the son of an elephant trainer, so one doesn't really get the idea that he's had a spiritual life beforehand, because obviously he was training to be an elephant trainer, which would have been the natural thing for him to do, became an arahant in a very short time. Maybe that gives us a little um, incentive. I mean, if the son of an elephant trainer can do it, there's no reason why a, an, you know, an ordinary person can't do it. A lawyer? Hmm? <laughs> or an architect? Or what else have we got? An electronics engineer? <laughs> I mean, why is there any reason why, why such people can't do it? If the son of an elephant trainer can do it. Now, to um, 
And that's the end of the sutta. And the last sentences, which are read out, are repeated in many, many of the suttas. And sometimes we find that a person who has been listening to the Buddha becomes a lay follower, like Potapada does, and sometimes they become a monk or a nun. Either way, um, it's not often that any of the suttas end up with somebody just walking away and, and thinking to himself, well, I'll think about it. But it does happen also. There also somewhere the person who's been addressed uh, says, well, thank you very much, and I've got a lot of things to do, and I'll come back another time. So, but um, these are usually, I, I presume that these suttas, that the uh, discourses he had with such people, were not interesting enough to be repeated because they probably didn't ask enough questions. But these two here, Potapada and Chitta, are certainly asking very pertinent questions. So in order to recapitulate what this sutta is all about, the um, it's called the Potapada Sutta, which is very often the case that the discourse has the name of the person that is being addressed, but it has an undertitle which says states of consciousness which is what it's mainly about. And the way it started was that Potapada is sitting in this hall with all, this, um, with all his followers and all his friends, and there's a great deal of noise going on, and he tells them to be quiet because he sees the Buddha coming, and he says this uh, ascetic doesn't like all this noise, and uh, so be quiet so that he comes and we can talk to him. So they are quiet, and then then the Buddha asked him what they were talking about. And Potapada says, never mind what we were talking about, it's not so important. But we have had this very important question. We want to know about the extinction of um, consciousness, the higher extinction of consciousness, he asked him about. And he says that there are certain views, many different views. Perceptions arise and cease without cause or condition or when one is conscious or unconscious and how this all this comes about and are perceptions the person's self or are they not and uh, so he puts quite a number of interesting questions and so then the Buddha tells him that this is all wrong that there is no such thing as perceptions that um, have no cause or condition that one has to have a training in order to change one's perceptions. And then he tells them that this training starts out with moral conduct, and he always starts out like that. There's, uh, it's at least mentioned, and here it's also only mentioned, with moral conduct, and then that um, mindfulness and clear comprehension in guarding the sense doors. And after that, he goes through the eight jhanas with them and explains the eight meditative absorptions to him, which one after the other has higher states of consciousness. And the training lies in the fact that because one has moral conduct, one has mindfulness, one has a guarding of the sense doors, at least during meditation, that these states of consciousness can arise and that one realizes that there are higher ones and therefore drops the lower ones. Now, this is a very traditional way of the Buddha's exposition, what the spiritual path is all about. It is hardly ever, 
unless he talks to lay people about their uh, conduct in daily life, it's hardly ever um, left out completely. It's very often just a very brief allusion to this, but here he goes through all eight of them with quite, in a quite detailed way and in quite an interesting way, which we have, you know, talked about. And then, when he gets to the end of that, he says, well, and then, of course, one realizes that mental activity is very unpleasant, so one uh, stops having this mental activity, not thinking, not imagining, and uh, as these coarser perceptions of this mental activity no longer arise, he attains cessation. And then... Padre starts asking him new questions. He wants to know whether perceptions arise before knowledge or knowledge arise before perception. So the Buddha tells him no, or simultaneously tells him no, that's not, that's not possible, that uh, one has to have perception first and then the knowledge arises. And uh, then he wants to know about the person's self whether perception is the self or whether the self is perception and all that. You know, so then um, he postulates the three different selves, and as he postulates the three different selves, um, he also asks him whether the world's eternal or not, whether it's infinite or finite, and uh, he wants to know whether the Buddha uh, lives after uh, exists after death or not. And the Buddha gives him all these answers that it's neither this nor that. And then the wanderers, his friends, Potapada's friends, because Potapada agrees to everything the Buddha says, make fun of Potapada and say, well, you know, you're saying to everything, yes, we don't understand the word that the Buddha is saying. And then Potapada says, well, I don't either. I don't either understand it, but he's teaching us a practice path, and that's what I'm agreeing to. Now, this is a very important aspect, and I don't think I have really emphasized it enough and therefore I'd like to do that now is we also don't understand everything the Buddha says, do we? I mean, if we did, we'd all be enlightened. So obviously something is missing somewhere. But he's teaching us a practice path. That's all we need. We don't need anything else. Just like what the Pada says, yes, Lord, that's fine, Lord. And then his friends say, well, what you're saying, yes, and that's fine. You don't know what he's talking about. We don't know what he's talking about. That's not necessary. We don't have to know. We have to practice. And if we have that willingness, that openness, that faithfulness to really practice, and not many people have, there's no reason why one shouldn't become enlightened. I'll be happy to repeat that sentence. (laughs) I mean it. (laughs) <laughs> no reason whatsoever but most people just don't have that kind of faithfulness they don't have that kind of resolution they don't have that kind of feeling that here is the path to practice here I'm told what to do and I don't have to understand it all right from the word go when, when we start school we don't understand everything that's going on but we've got to sit there and, and do whatever we're told to do and finally we can read and we can write and we do understand mathematics and in the end we do know what they're all talking about. And then we can actually teach too because we've understood it. 
But in the beginning we don't. And yet, because we're forced to, we've got to sit there and do it. And most of us actually do it. But here, nobody forces us. Nobody forces us to become enlightened. It's strictly of our own making and our own uh, understanding. And if we have that kind of understanding, it means that the mind is bright. The brightness in the mind that we at least realize this much. And put a part of that. The bright fellow, we understand. There's a practice path. And uh, so that's why I'm agreeing with the Lord, he says, because he's teaching a practice. And actually what the Buddha is saying is this. He says, I have not declared that the world is eternal. I haven't declared that the world is finite. I haven't declared that it's infinite. I haven't declared that the Buddha is going to live after death. I haven't declared any of this. So Purapada says, well, what have you declared? Obviously, sir perfectly valid question. So he says, Buddha says, Potapada, I have declared this is suffering, this is the origin of suffering, this is the cessation of suffering, and this is the path leading to the cessation of suffering. In other words, I have declared the Four Noble Truths, which are his enlightenment declaration, which when he sat under the Bodhi tree and um, attained the cessation of all craving, that was his declaration those four noble truths. And he doesn't go into any detail either because it isn't, hasn't been transmitted or because the Noble Eightfold Path has that often already been written down or because Potapada knew anyway what he's talking about. And one would assume, and that's a personal opinion, that Potapada knew what the Buddha was talking about. And then Potapada says, but why has the Lord declared this? Because that, the Buddha says, is the way to enlightenment to Nibbana. And I'm only declaring that which brings, goes to enlightenment to Nibbana. And the other stuff that Potapada is asking about is just not important enough to even discuss. Whether it's eternal, finite, infinite, doesn't really matter. So Potapada gets a bad time from his friends, but he is not to be deterred. He continues listening to the Buddha. Now this is another thing. In the days of the Buddha, such books did not exist, obviously. It was all verbal. People were able to listen. Nowadays it's very difficult. I try never to talk more than at the very maximum 50 minutes because I know even that most of it is forgotten one day later you can prove it yourself can't listen we've lost the art of listening in the time of the Buddha people became enlightened by listening to one discourse one this is number 19, I think. Anybody enlightened? Doesn't look like a person. Anyway, there was the, the queen came up and she listened to one discourse and was still dressed as a queen and went home and took all these things off that she was wearing and was 
enlightenment and then go and meet Yamanana afterwards. That happened to many. Because listening in those days was a trained um, capacity in everyone. Nowadays we are so used to having it brought visually to us and not to have to learn it through hearing and to see everything that happens with the, in, in the visual aspect and also because there's so much noise going on in the world the listening has been has deteriorated and we also find it very often difficult to listen to another person we'd much rather tell our own stories now that of course is a, probably a quality that's always been there but to really listen is not easy because there is something behind the words it's not the words you see words are concepts and concepts are stationary they are static they are, they are not movable a word is a word is a word but what's behind all these words is not stationary it's constantly moving there's a feeling behind those words and if one listens to the feeling behind those words one has an entirely different impact because one feels something we have the communication system through words if we weren't um, overrun by thoughts we could communicate without words and some people can very well but as a situation where something specific has to be transmitted it's always been done with words but with the Buddha probably with Jesus the same way great masters of that kind the words themselves are only half the story or less less than half it's all the feeling behind it it's all the impact of the person that has that um, that hasn't only the words at the, at the disposal but the whole being that comes with the words and in the Buddhist case of course that was an enormous impact and therefore people were able to get enlightened by listening to him so then after having told him that this is the way to go to enlightenment then um, Potapada um, brings this uh, chitta along and uh, so they're both going to see him and then he asked the Buddha also about um, whether this is an entirely happy place and whether it's true with the suffering that the Buddha that he said and put the Pada agrees here there is suffering and uh, then there are Potapada's main question then is about the three acquired selves and the Buddha says that through purification we can get rid of this acquisition of the self now here the word acquisition is a different word from the one we usually find which is delusion or illusion the self which is an illusion but here it says we have acquired it we have actually uh, taken a hold of it and which is a very good word because we have taken a hold of it and having taken a hold of it 
it has become our greatest aspect of clinging. We're clinging to it for dear life. Because without it, we wouldn't cling to dear life at all. Life wouldn't be so dear, would it? So, now they're discussing these three different selves and through purification, Buddha says, to get, to get rid of it. And um, not only that, but because of this purification, the wisdom, inside wisdom, will arise, which makes it possible then to see that this is nothing but an acquisition. And And then Chitta wants to know whether one can say that all three selves exist at the same time. And Chitta then asked the Buddha whether these three selves all exist at the same time. And then, of course, the Buddha leave that ad absurdum because it's impossible to have three selves all at the same time. It's either this one or that one. And Shita himself gets to that idea that that's, that's quite right. You can either, you either have this one or have that one. So, which in itself can show Shita and can show us that if we can have a different self at any given time, which one is the right one? And obviously there's something wrong with this idea. I mean, sometimes we can have this, um, as Chitta um, then says, we can have a self in the past, we can have a self in the present, and we can have a self in the future, but we can't have them all at the same time. And also, we can have this gross self, the physical one, containing, uh, existing because of the four elements and out of uh, solid food, and we can have the mind-made one and the formless one. So, if we can have one at a time and change it at will, well, which one are we really? Higher self, medium self, lower self. We can call it like that. Gross one, lower self. Mind mid one, middle side, middle one, medium one. And then uh, formless one, higher self. So which one is which? Which one are we? Well, obviously we are one sometimes and another one another time. Well, that alone shows us the absurdity of that kind of understanding which is rampant in everybody's mind who hasn't seen Nibbana. So that in itself is also sh- uh, an explanation which helps both listeners, Potapada and Chitta, to see that there's something wrong in this postulation. Potapada postulated this and then Chitta goes along with it and wants to know at what time one is which one. And then the Buddha shows that it's impossible. So then in the end we've just read that. Now, with that explanation of the Buddha that we have a practice path, he refers to the Noble Eightfold Path as the practice path. And so far we have used out of the Noble Eightfold Path only right view and right effort because mindfulness has already been discussed in detail and concentration has too because concentration are the jhanas now there's one other aspect which is uh, important other than the morality part which we have already discussed also which is the 
right speech, right action, right livelihood, to some extent, has been discussed. But there's one which hasn't been discussed, and that's right intention. That's the second step on the Noble Eightfold Path. And it, together with right view, which we have talked about at length, 16 right views, if you remember, or not remember, these two together constitute the wisdom part of the Noble Eightfold Path. Now, the effort, mindfulness, and concentration constitute the concentration part of the Noble Eightfold Path. There's always three parts to all of the teachings, Sila, Samadhi, and Panya, morality, concentration, and wisdom insight. So the two, view and intention, are the wisdom insight ones, the concentration ones are the three last ones, mindfulness, uh, sorry, effort, mindfulness, and concentration, and the middle ones, which I've just enumerated, are the morality part. Now, right intention has several different aspects which we should look at. From a meditative point of view, it is very helpful to recognize the intention in the mind. Now, the intention in the mind is that which makes us speak and act. Now, in a very simple way, if we do walking meditation or just walk, we could watch the mind having the intention and the body then following through on it. Now, if we can actually notice that a few times, we will become aware of the importance of intention. All of our whole life is led through intention, most of the time we're totally unaware because unfortunately we're half asleep, even when we're awake. We don't pay attention to intention. We pay attention afterwards. And if we should pay attention afterwards, we have to go back to intention. What was my intention? Now, obviously, this is exactly the same thing as the first step on clear comprehension. What is the purpose? Intention and purpose could be used interchangeably. So, if we watch our intentions, we have a very good gauge which way we're going, and we also have an extremely valid understanding and impactful understanding of the mind giving the orders. We have to get to that point in our daily life. It's the only, it's only the very first step on insight. But if we don't see it, that this ordering of the mind is happening, we can never change it. The mind will constantly order us something, but it might order us quite foolish things to do or hurtful things. So that's the first thing we can do. Watch the intention. And then, if it's too late, seeing the intention ahead of time, before we speak or act, having spoken or acted, go back and see what was the intention. And check it out. Was my intention 
beneficial, profitable, skillful, was it sincere? Was it truthful? Or was it an exhibition of self? It very often is. It's very often an exhibition of self. The more often one can notice that, the easier it is to understand that the self is constantly giving us problems, making problems for us. And the easier it will be to have that intention to get rid of it, of that illusion, of that acquisition. The acquisition of the self is the difficulty under which humanity operates. It's not wars, it's not robberies, it's not killing. These are all only the expressions of the self-illusion. And of course we are not doing that. We are not robbing, we are not killing. We're not uh, fighting a war, but we still have the self to deal with. So how does it show itself? What does it do? And as we see what it does, it's not any good to try and reduce it or push it down. But all we can do is be careful that we can see that our intentions become wholesome and very uh, profitable and skillful. Now when we want to look at skillful, wholesome, profitable intentions, we can look quite simply at the six roots. This is another purification system. And since it all works together, and what I'm trying to show you is a jigsaw puzzle of separate instructions which make one beautiful whole. It all belongs together. It's a purification system which works on all levels and eventually works on such a deep and profound level within us that the purification becomes complete. That all the gross aspects, the defiled aspects, have disappeared. We cannot suppress them, we cannot wish them away, we can only act them away. So we have this other purification system. We have six roots. We're born with six roots. And luckily three of them are good and three of them only are evil. So we are quite fortunate actually. We have the three roots of evil, greed, hate, and delusion. And we have their three opposites, generosity, love, and wisdom. So obviously, our intentions can be checked against those six. And that is not difficult to remember. In fact, it wouldn't hurt to make a big sign over one's bed and write them all six on there so that one can actually check them. Because to hear those things and not remember them 
means that one has heard them in vain. If we remember them, we can practice them. If we don't practice them, then our whole spiritual life doesn't have any reality to it. It's wishful thinking. And, of course, there's a lot of that wishful thinking. It's up to each person. But the first thing is to know about it, the information. The second thing is the remembering. And since our memories are notoriously poor and are getting poorer and poorer because we're we're depending now upon the memories that are stored in computers, we don't even rely on our own memory at all anymore, it's getting so poor that we have to write things down. So we can't keep it in our head anymore unless we make a point of really learning it by heart. And six things to learn by heart isn't too much, is it? Greed, hate, and delusion. Generosity, love, and wisdom. Not difficult, is it? Try it out and see whether you can remember tomorrow. If we have an, a, a check on our intentions, we go, at, we go by those six checkpoints. Now, greed does not necessarily mean that we are trying to have um, more material things and try to become rich or have uh, many uh, belongings. It doesn't mean that necessarily. Greed is all of our wanting. All the wanting, all the craving, all the evil support that we're looking for, all the um, proliferation that we have in the mind. Because of that, meditation is often so difficult because we want to proliferate, we want to make ourselves bigger. So we think of more things, things to do, things to have, things to know, things to plan, things to remember, Whatever it may be, we get bigger and bigger because of this thinking process. We are not such a tiny little um, kernel of sand anymore, but we are somebody big because we can think so many things. Now that too is craving. Anything that proliferates, anything that supports this being here, that is connected to craving and on its more subtle level the opposite of that is giving oneself giving oneself and eventually giving oneself away Nibbana means just that Buddha said Nibbana means non-clinging it means giving oneself away. Now, in the beginning, it's giving oneself. So, I have explained already to some of you, and I'll say it now. If we want to meditate, we do need to make a determination. But the determination must not be confused with trying to achieve something. If we want to achieve something, 
if we have that wish to achieve concentration, we want to get something. Determination means we want to give ourselves completely to that what we're doing. An enormous difference is they're opposites. And yet, they do not appear as opposites in our verbalization. But it's an important point how we should start our meditation if we have any difficulty getting concentrated. Giving ourselves completely. Now that is obviously the opposite of greed, of wanting. And in meditation, extremely important. And there we can check it out whether we're able to do it. If the mind is willing to give itself to this, and then comes back, starts thinking, obviously the craving has arisen again, so one has to give oneself again to this. And then the mind comes back and starts thinking again. That's all it is. It's the craving to be. And these are the three cravings that we have. The craving for sensual gratification, the craving to be, and then sometimes the opposite of that, the craving not to be when things go terribly wrong and we have an idea they should try and get along without us and we'll just disappear. But that doesn't help anything either. It's just the other side of the same coin, craving not to be. So we actually are dealing with two cravings, the craving to be and the craving for sensual gratification. And the greed, that is actually the same thing, arises out of this craving to be, which is the delusion of there is somebody here who needs and wants and we have a terrible time trying to distinguish between need and greed. It's very difficult. You can try sometimes. What is a need and what is greed? And greed is anything that we want that isn't a need. So it can be very interesting to figure that out. The opposite of greed is not only generosity, we can use a different word. We can use the word renunciation, renouncing. Now that cannot be done by force, because the mind objects. If the mind objects, there's no way we can meditate. So renunciation has to be based on insight, that all wanting, all craving, all trying to get is connected with dukkha. And we mustn't believe this statement, we must understand it from our own experience, which is then the understood experience. If we haven't understood the experience, then the experience doesn't help us, because we have that experience day in and day out, and we don't understand it, so it's no good to us. We must eventually understand it. Everybody has that experience that anything we want, whatever it is, to get or to get rid of, creates dukkha in the mind. Because the mind is not contented, the mind is not satisfied, it's dissatisfied. And because of that dissatisfaction, it wants to get something or wants to get rid of something. But we, we do it all the time. And we're so used to it that we don't understand what that's happening. In fact, there are many people, I'm sure I haven't 
counted, but must be thousands, millions maybe, who say, oh, my life's okay, I have no, I have no dukkha. It's okay. What do you want with this? Buddhism always talks about dukkha. What is that for necessary? I'm all right. I'm all right, mate. It's a, in fact, it's a, it's a, a way of, uh, of life. No dukkha. We've got it all the time. We're so used to it. It's so, we are so, it's such a habit within our inner being that we, we don't know what it's like to be without it. That if we are without it for a moment, the mind says, goodness, what's that? I can't be right. Something's wrong. All of a sudden there wasn't any dukkha for some reason because we practiced well for a little while or something. So this experience that we're having of this dissatisfaction within is of course the reason for wanting to meditate, which is fine. It doesn't matter what reason. Any reason is good enough. Um, but that needs to be seen, understood, and um, recognized deeply so that we can renounce our wishes and our cravings because we then know that the minute we do, that dukkha disappears until all dukkha disappears because there's nothing to crave for. Not only because there's nobody craving anything, but because all that one could possibly crave for has been seen as worthless. It doesn't have any intrinsic value. So greed has the two counterparts. One is giving, which means generosity, giving money, giving things, giving time, lending an ear, giving one's skills, giving a helping hand, and eventually giving oneself to the practice, and one day giving oneself up completely, in order to experience what it's like to be without the self. And it has, as another aspect of it, the renunciation. The renunciation of all that isn't entirely necessary because of the understanding, the insight, that every wish, every craving creates Buddha. And this is how we live. Because if we don't want to have this, we want something else. We're lying down, we want to get up. We're standing, we would like to walk. We're walking, we'd like to sit down again. We're sitting down, we want to stretch our legs. We have stretched our legs, now we want to sit down again. Now we have meditated, we want to stop that, we want to have a bushwalk. We've had a bushwalk, we want to have a shower. We've had a shower, we want to lie down. No end. We've eaten, we've read too full. We haven't eaten, we're too hungry. That's always something. And the mind can think of a thousand other 
this is only the, the usual ones. That's the ones that we have to deal with constantly. But the mind has much more ideas than that. Reading a book, oh, it's boring. Put it away. Get another one. There's always something. Renouncing that has to be based on the inside that this inner wish depicts only the unsatisfactoriness that exists within the emptiness which has not been filled or fulfilled, the anxiety which is the existential anxiety which is constantly there as a fear and because we want to get rid of that fear to fill it somehow with some something that doesn't even fulfill or fill us. So we have to see renunciation with Insight, we can't force it. Insight will bring it. But we need to, for that we need to watch ourselves. The third, uh, sorry, the fourth foundation of mindfulness. Content of mind. And one of the four, one of the contents of mind given by the Buddha for the fourth foundation is the Noble Eightfold Path in which we can check out what is the intention and as we check out what is the intention we can check it against the craving that has brought about again new Dukkha. Only if we see that the two are always together craving and Dukkha always together only then will we eventually give up and give in and say, what is there to have? What is there to get? Is it really worthwhile? Or can we just be for a change and not get? Now, all of this is wound up and bound up with the delusion aspect to be changed into the wisdom aspect. Our delusion means that we are, if that's uh, our, the main factor in the mind, it means we are only superficial. We don't see anything that goes into depth. Because obviously, why shouldn't we walk and then sit and sit and then, then uh, stand and stand and lie down and get a have a shower and walk and, and, and meditate and get up again and do this and that. Why shouldn't we? On a superficial level, that's perfectly okay. But on a non-superficial level, on a depth level, we can compare ourselves to those birds out there. Have you ever watched them? They aren't still for a moment. There they peck a little bit at the food. Then they drink a little bit of the water. Then some other bird comes, and of course it's being chased away because it's taking away my food. So that other bird has to be uh, pushed off this little uh, uh, balustrade there so that it doesn't get at the food. Then they're down at the bottom and they're looking around, somebody coming to take my food, not still for a moment. And if we can compare ourselves to that, we can see that we're doing exactly the same thing. Only we don't look quite as pretty. <laughs> but then maybe they think we look pretty who knows so 
this will help us to get past this delusion aspect, which is the superficial aspect, where what we're doing looks perfectly okay. And it is perfectly okay. Our greed, our craving is perfectly okay if we don't hurt another person with it, which also happens, of course, if we would, you know, do something which is um, against the precepts. But since we don't do that, and since nobody's being hurt by what we're doing, we don't even see it. Here we have a chance to get into that delusion aspect by asking ourselves, why am I doing this? What is my intention? Why am I thinking this? What is my intention? Why am I saying this? What is my intention? And sometimes we may actually become aware of the fact that the intention is ego support because we feel a little bit down. All right. Okay, so it's ego support because we feel a little bit down. It's okay, except we need to see it. Ego support is going to be looked for until the day one is arahant. Even non-returner has that tiny little bit of attachment to ego. Hardly noticeable, but it's there. But at least to know what we're doing. Not to on that level where the whole world lives, where all these things are perfectly all right, that's the way one lives. And as one lives that way, it becomes worse and worse. Because one is looking for more and more things that could um, satisfy one's craving. Because having satisfied with being satisfied with one thing, the next time it doesn't satisfy anymore. It's got to be something else. And something else. And something else. And the whole thing looks just exactly like those birds out there. Looking here, looking there, pecking here, pecking there, looking around if somebody's coming, chasing the other one off. Exactly the same thing. On a, in a situation that we have here where it's quiet, where we can look at ourselves, we can become aware of this. And then we can see the intention. Now the intention may, as I said already, be exactly that. I want some ego support. I'm feeling a bit down. I'm not feeling so hot today. Now, all right. But know it. Because once one knows it, one can let go. And even if that particular one, one hasn't let go of, the next one, one can. And as one, as we see it quite clearly, it becomes an understanding of what this person is all about. Why we hang on to this ego illusion so strongly? Because we keep on identifying with all that what we want. And we, we justify it, of course. It's perfectly right. These are good things I want. Our, in, our investigation into our intentions is again the fourth base of mindfulness. Without mindfulness, it's not going to happen. Being awake and aware. Being alert to oneself. It makes life far more interesting. Without that, life is dull and 
one's negativities take one by surprise. And because they surprise one, we have no idea where they come from, we justify them. We must be like that. Maybe our parents didn't bring us up well, or um, the situation we're in is terrible. There must there is a justification system going on because we haven't got a, any idea where it comes from. So the watchfulness of one's intention is extremely helpful in counteracting our unwholesome roots and cultivating the wholesome. Now I haven't talked about the other unwholesome one yet. I'll do that tomorrow. The hate one. I'll do that tomorrow. And the cultivation of the wholesome roots is the purification system par excellence. There's nothing more important. And we have already talked about how to deal with thoughts, how to deal with emotions. Now here we know how to deal with intentions. All we have to do is watch. And it's quite easy to see. And the more we do it, the easier it becomes, naturally. The skill. Anybody learns a skill, they can do it nicely. Having done it for a long time, it's automatic. You watch people doing things like typing very fast, and you wonder, how can they do that? I can only do it with one finger. How can they do it like that? Well, they've been doing it for years. It's nothing. They don't even have to look. It's the same with this. First you do it with one finger. You look and you see, what is this now? What intention did I have? Hmm, can't remember. Okay, next time. But eventually it becomes all clear and it's all a skill which is quite natural and habitual. And as we have that skill then, we of course do not remain with the unwholesome roots because they do create all the unwholesome roots create unhappiness and nobody wants that although we're used to it to that inner feeling of disquiet we are still not really keen on keeping it so that's enough for one evening you can ask some questions if you like The whole real right intention. <laughs> no, no. Right intention means the the um, the wholesome one, the profitable one, the um, um, the skillful one that go that goes along with the wholesome roots. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the one with without hate or greed or delusion. That's the right intention. Always that that takes us on the right path. Yes, it's a thought. It's all part of mind. What else? Yes. Seems to always have to be delusion. 
based on the legal, how, how would you then circulate this mark along since it's always based on the ego? Mm. But you can want to have a nice ego or a nasty ego, couldn't you? So you try to be nice instead of nasty. It's the, the ego delusion <laughs> tells you that you're doing it. And Arahant doesn't think that he or she is doing anything. They're just doing it. That's the difference. But you can do the nice things instead of the nasty things. That's the right intention. The only thing that's wrong with that is that you think you're doing it. But that's okay. At least it's nice instead of nasty. Right? <laughs> Usually we think that the intention are the is the thing which makes the things going. Intention is the absicht. Yeah. Yeah. This is uh, the thing which makes uh, the things going that we do this thing and then yeah. that thing. Sure. Oh, he's also, he's al- of course, no, the difference is only that an Arahan, the fully enlightened one, he also has right intention. It's impossible to have wrong intention and doesn't think that he or she is doing anything. It's just being done. It's just happening. Mind and body are there, so they're doing something. But that no, idea... No, for only for the one who's got an ego. No, Song said that because we have an ego, now then our intention must be ego-based, so then it's always must be something wrong with it. You know? But the only thing that's wrong with it is that even if it's the right intention, you still think you're doing this, you're having this intention. Whereas the, the Arahant doesn't think that there's a, he has an intention, it's just, yes, it's, it's intention. Any other right intentions, renunciations, generosity, anything else? See this giving, which is generosity, and this giving oneself, which is the the wholeheartedness, and which has devotion and love in it, is absolutely essential. Otherwise, it is impossible to eventually get rid of this self-idea, because that is a whole and complete giving away. So there's nothing that is more important than that pathway of not wanting but giving in all aspects. Now obviously we can't always um, succeed, but we can try and see the importance. See it as, as for what it is. And in meditation, one can uh, notice it very clearly. If one gives oneself to it wholeheartedly, it works. 
And if there's always that little little mouse in the back of the mind saying, now oh, wait a minute, I just still have to think about that one thing now. And then that is finished, that one thing that one still has to think about, and then one gives oneself again to the meditation. And then the mind comes back and says, yes, but I really thought I should figure this one out first. And then again, and again. It doesn't work. Yes. Um, people quite often are generous because it's considered meritorious. Mm-hmm. There seems to be somehow flawed, you know, that, that, that there is a, an expectation that they're going to receive merit yes. uh, as a result of their generosity. Sure. It is, it is a flaw. But it's still better than not being generous. There are levels of generosity. That is, one could say maybe, well, there's the first or lowest level would be being generous because everybody else is doing it and one doesn't want to uh, be left out or stand apart. And then there's another one which is quite common also um, that you get recognition for. You know, somebody thanks you and you get maybe even written up about it. Or you get a plaque on the house saying this was donated or this hospital bed was donated by so-and-so. And then the next one is getting married in another life, um, which is already a little higher than the rest than the one spent before. You know, the one with the plaque on the hospital bed is not so great. And then comes the married one. And after the married one, uh, then probably comes as a next step uh, without any in-between already that the person who really wants to give because he or she doesn't see any separation between who has anything. It doesn't matter who's got it. You just give it because there's no need to keep anything which goes beyond uh, one's needs. And that then is, of course, generosity without any strings attached. So we have all all different ones, and um, whichever one we can handle. Each one is is uh, on the on the way. Anything else? It's the same thing. The uh, what is the purpose is the same inquiry as what is my intention. It's very close. I mean, it's yes. I would say it's the same thing. And then yes, uh, if you then use the rest of the um, clear comprehension, is it the skillful means? Is it within the Dhamma and is it without delusion? That will be extremely helpful. But for that, one has to become really mindful of one's mind states. Yeah. One can't take them for granted. Yeah, the one that's easier. Just, Just to see the craving. Just to see the craving, yes, yes. Because uh, it doesn't require that much inquiry. It's just easier. To watch the, the, to use a clear comprehension, one really has to take time to, to inquire in each one. Well, time, I mean one minute, but still, 
Most people don't have that one minute between intention and action. They follow each other immediately. So it's, um, but even in walking, sitting, getting up, in all of it, we can see the intention. And that's very helpful to know that. Well, if you give yourself wholeheartedly to whatever you're doing, first of all, it certainly eliminates the self-concern at that time. You see, what, what most people have self-concern when they're doing anything. So the thing happens half-heartedly. And that's how we get all these mistakes that people make. Because they're not in it. Things are made, they're mistakes. They forget, and they do this, and they do that, and then they have to go back and do it again. And also they get nervous, and they get tense, and they get under under stress, because there's somebody there, some self, that is being constantly, uh, has to be catered for. And because it's, it's very difficult to cater to it all the time. So if you give yourself wholeheartedly to whatever it is you're doing, you have no stress, no tension, nothing, and you won't make mistakes which means also that you're completely and utterly mindful at the time. Exactly the same thing. And that applies to the meditation practice in such a way that you can't even do it without that. I mean, one can't meditate without doing that. Whereas you can peel potatoes half-heartedly. But if you peel them wholeheartedly, it's much nicer. I wouldn't put it that way <laughs> because it isn't necessarily so. Um, if you have had enough insight into and possibly enough experience already of non-self, um, enough insight into the damaging aspect of the self-illusion and the damaging aspects of craving you will continually work on letting go, just letting go, and continually try to give yourself, which will then result in good meditation and in wholeheartedly being with whatever you're doing. The good meditation itself will help, yes, but the insight that goes with that understanding which I've just explained um, is also needed. They both have to be there. Both have to come. One can get concentrated and not understand what's going on. It's unlikely, but it's possible. Which is then not an understood experience. Such things are possible. Anything is possible with our minds. Even enlightenment. <laughs> <laughs> Please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments.
go inside of yourself find the point of total stillness a still point where nothing moves in your heart where there's just quiet nothing moves nothing changes nothing becomes or used to be a point of stillness and recognize that as a seed of enlightenment within you try to find that point of utter stillness in your heart if there wouldn't be such a seed within us we couldn't make it grow it's there drop everything that surrounds it everything that could possibly cover it just find that one point the seed of enlightenment within you and love it give it all your love now love that in everybody around you that seed of enlightenment whether you can actually find it in anyone or not you know it must be there give it all your love in every person that's around you now Think of anyone whom you're particularly attached to, don't want to lose. Recognize the seed of enlightenment in that person and love only that in that person, which is totally impersonal.
can now think of anyone whom you don't like or find difficult and love that seed of enlightenment in that person with all that your heart can give Now think of the people you know. Love the seed of enlightenment in each one of them. Think of people you've seen but don't particularly know very well. You've seen them anywhere at all. Think of that seed of enlightenment in them. Love them equally with everyone else. And now think of all of humanity, whichever way you can picture them, in this country, in other countries, different races, nationalities, religions, different ideas and viewpoints, and think that there is a seed of enlightenment, a still point in each person in each human being, no matter who they are. And let your heart go out to each one, loving them, feeling totally connected with them, because they carry the same within that we carry.
go back to yourself find that still point within you again know it to be your most valuable possession know it to be your connection to all beings to all states of consciousness and beyond cherish it, love it care for it Feel the cherishing and loving within you, filling you. And then let that cherishing and loving spread outward like the warm rays of the sun going in all directions warming everyone without discrimination let your heart now be like that sun let it spread further and further Feel at one with all that the rays of your heart can touch with love. No separation. Come back to your own still point, the center of your heart, 
nothing moving. Give it all your love. May the seed of enlightenment flourish in all beings. 